In 1989, I got one of my early uh, first jobs here in Bowling Green as a freshman, and I was delivering pizzas for Miles Pizza. If some of you older people remember that, you can clap for Miles Pizza. All right. We got some clappers today. That sounds great. And uh, you know, one of the hardest jobs about being a delivery person in a new town, because I'm from Tiffin, Ohio, was figuring out where all the roads were but even more specifically, trying to see the numbers over the doors so that I would take the pizza to the right door. It was very challenging. Uh, all the guys there that worked there were really rough, and it was, they weren't very helpful, and they just say, hey, just point to the map and figure it out. And so I would be frantically running around Bowling Green trying to find the right door. You can't just knock on any door, right, and say, hey, did you order a pizza? Because they're all going to say, yeah, yeah, I'll take that pizza because it's Miles Pizza. People would actually do that. So you had to know what address you were going to. Now, back in that day, we had it hard. We did not have cell phones back then, right? So today it's easy. You know, I was just, we ordered some pizza a little while ago back up in Toledo just two weeks ago. I think the delivery guy called me four times on his way on his cell phone to find out where I was. And I was remembering my days of delivering these pizzas that we didn't have it that easy. These guys are soft. Today, you know, we were, we, it was hard. We had a landline. We said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. And if it was raining and you couldn't see that little number over the door, and I'm running through neighborhoods with pizzas, you know, trying to figure out where I was going. And again, you can't just go to a gigantic apartment complex and pick a door, right? And knock and leave the pizza and take off. There is a right door. It would be ridiculous to just leave that pizza anywhere else. Today, we're talking about Jesus using this reference of a door with the disciples and the Pharisees that he's speaking to, and he refers to himself as the door, the right door. And just like it's crazy to just drop off a pizza uh, to some place that it doesn't go, that there's a correct door, Jesus was saying to the people of that time, there's lots of doors to choose from in life. But Jesus makes this really bold statement. He said, there's only one right door, and I'm that door. I am that gate. I am that entrance. So to talk about this today, you know, you see this picture of just all these beautiful doors. You think, yeah, those all look great. And it kind of gives you this picture of these options that we have in our world and all this indecision that we can have because there's just so many great options. And as great and as warm as that sounds, that isn't what the Bible tells us about walking with God. And he gives this very specific thing, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I want to give a whole bunch of context before we jump into our, our passage of Scripture, which is in John 10. I'm going to give a little bit more background and context than normal, because right now we're in this I Am series, okay? And we're talking about the I Am series of these seven I Ams that are in the book of John, so it's kind of like we're doing a series a little bit on the book of John, and I want to give you some context on that, on this series that we're doing, because these statements are really bold statements, okay? These are not just some flippant things that Jesus is sharing, and this is why the people were so angry with him, okay? This was not like a feel-good message when Jesus would say these statements. He was drawing a line in the sand and asking them to make bold decisions about who he was. And in this series, 
um, you know, we're focusing in the book of John, and the context of that is to really know, well, what is the book of John about? Even though the Gospels we know are Jesus' life, Jesus' story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those four Gospels have a little different theme because they have a different audience and a different author. Matthew was writing, he was a Jewish person, and he was writing to the Jewish people about Jesus being the Messiah. This was really important to them. Right at the beginning of Matthew is the genealogy taking them back to Abraham. So the Jewish people were reading the book of Matthew, written to them about Jesus, this Jewish person saying, yeah, this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Mark is different. Mark skips over those genealogies because it was directed to the Roman people who really valued uh, service. They valued action. They were men and women of action. So they're just like, well, just tell me what Jesus did. So this, this one is about uh, th that Jesus was a servant to the Romans. It's got a lot of his miracles and what he did for the people. Luke was written to all people, not just the Jewish people. Matter of fact, it's got a little bit more of a Gentile flavor to it. And it takes the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam to tell the people, Jesus isn't just for the Jews, it's for the Gentile people too. He came to save everybody. That's kind of what Luke uh, is all about with the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. It's like the whole world is lost, but Jesus came for everybody. And then fourthly, we're here in John, this series, this I Am series in John. And what is the context of John? Many different themes, but really the main theme is that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God, which means he is deity. And that bold statement is what people were so upset about. And these I am statements is why we're doing this series goes all the way back to Exodus. The first time we see this phrase show up is when God had visited Moses and he's getting ready to tell Moses, you know, here's this great mission I have. Moses had no idea how difficult this was going to be. But he said, all our Jewish people are trapped there in Egypt. They're under Pharaoh. I want you to go, and I'm going to do these miraculous signs through you. And I want you to do these things. I'm going to work through you. Moses like, I can't do this, God. I can't even speak well. Why are you sending me? No. God said, no, I, it's my power. You're going to go. You're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and, and we're going to let him go through some trials, and we're going to win this battle. And, and he says, I don't even know who you are. What am I going to tell the people? And here's what it says in Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. Moses said, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Because they didn't even know who God was by this time. They'd been there for about 400 years in Egypt. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So the only name that God gives Moses to tell the people that they're going to be rescued is I am. All of the Jewish people after this moment know that phrase, whatever that phrase was. It was too holy of a phrase to even say the word what we call Jehovah today was a very holy name. Now here Jesus is all these years later and in the book of John it's being recorded where he keeps saying, I am, I am, I am. And the people are so upset. So Jesus was rejected in the book of John and, and throughout the Gospels he was rejected 
by many because he was making very bold claims. This whole idea of just this mild, gentle Jesus in his sandals that just loved everybody and was kind to everybody and everybody can just get along with Jesus is not what the scriptures actually teach. And that's what's the difficult fork in the road. Because of these bold claims, people were rejecting him. You know, each, each week we kind of try to give you the big idea of the teaching because we know that you can walk out of here and maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're like, what was that teaching even about? And we try to give you the big idea, that one sentence that would stick with you. Well, this morning I want to give you the big idea of the book of John because we're still talking about the context of this book. And the big idea of John is actually given to us in the book of John by the author himself, John, toward the end of the book. And here's what it is. Here's what it says in verses 30 and 31. The big idea, the whole summary of the book of John. It says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, the book of John, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is about as clear and decisive as a big idea for a summary of a book is that you could have. Jesus did all these miracles. He performed all these amazing signs. He loved people like no one had ever experienced. He spoke this truth that was just so bold and resonated in people's hearts. All the people's lives that were physically changed, spiritually changed, he died, he rose again. He did all these proofs, and many of the things that he did, we don't even get to know about because there weren't enough pages to record it all. And why did he do all this? They were written so that you and I would believe. Would believe this bold statement. These bold statements made by Jesus that he is the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And when it says the Son of God, that really means deity. You can't be the Son of God and not be God. And why we teach the Trinity and that by believing this, that, that in our minds and in our hearts, we'd have that intellectual knowledge and that heart belief. We would believe in that. We would put all of our faith in him. That that's what we would have. That's where we will have true life. That's where we will have eternal life in his name. So, you know, when we talk about these kind of bold statements, I feel like I need to give some more clarifications. Um, and I want to talk about this Ephesians 4 verse 15 where we talk about speaking the truth in love and I'm, I'm still getting to the passage but I wanted to just set this up because you know at H2O we really do our best and I know we don't always do it well but we do our best to speak the truth what we believe the Bible is saying the, the core values the major doctrines of our Christian faith we believe that we need to give those to the to, to the people we need to preach that boldly but we need to do it in love. And what I think this is important to clarify is I think a lot of churches and all of us, we all struggle to have that balance of the truth and love. If you go too far, if you're just only concerned with loving people, you could just be so kind and so loving and so tolerant that every belief that walks in and sits in the pews, you just want to agree with everyone because you want everyone to feel loved and accepted and respected. And that church could drift, and many do, 
to just believe everything. And if you accept and you believe everything because you just want to make people feel loved and welcomed, you believe in nothing. And there are many churches that don't believe the Bible's God's word. They don't take hard stances on things like the Trinity and who Jesus was and the resurrection and that we need Jesus to have forgiveness because they're so concerned about agreeing with everyone that they just live over here in this, what they call a loving church. Now, I know that you can have that pendulum swing to the other side where all you care about is truth. And you just have to tell everybody the truth. And maybe you start getting a little bit too harsh because you're not even thinking about how new people might feel in the church. And you're just drawing lines in the sand everywhere. And maybe, you know, the truth just keeps growing. And now all of a sudden you're making rules about everything. And the, and the pews just dwindle because everybody feels judged in the church. And they just feel like it's all legalism. And everything that everybody does is wrong, and people just feel like it, because the truth is just hit, hitting them over the head over and over again, kind of a fire and brimstone kind of feel, that the people don't understand love and grace. And so we're constantly trying to understand this inclusiveness of all people because we love everybody, and we want everyone to experience God but to also stand true to the truth. You know, Tim Keller did a, a talk about this, this, this kind of thing that I'm talking about, and this including of people, to make people feel welcomed and loved in our church. Tim Keller's a, a theologian. He's written a lot of great books. He's a deep thinker. A lot of people just love what he, he does in his Christian preaching. He's a really smart guy. And he was talking about this inclusivity but that, that Jesus is the only way is an exclusive statement. And he says this, all religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. I really like that. I think that kind of summarizes it. Is Jesus is saying, I am the door. There's one right door, but everybody is welcomed in that door. No matter what you've done, Gentile, Jew, rich, poor, no matter if you think you're a good person or you think, wow, I have really wrecked my life with a lot of bad decisions in my life, everyone is being pointed and invited to enter that door. But there aren't a hundred doors. There's not five different doors. There's not just, you know, even two choices. And we have to make these hard decisions because all world religions cannot be correct at the same time. And if you're new here today, again, we, we are so glad you're here. And if you're sorting all these things out, man, we're just blessed that you're here. And we hope that many of your questions become answered over the weeks and months as we build a relationship with you and you get into God's word and understand where we're coming from. And so we really mean this. There's no judgment in that. We love people and we respect people. And all world religions should be researched and understood. But it would only take us a few minutes of research into the different world religions to realize they do contradict each other. The Hindu people that, that um, believe in reincarnation, that, you know, I'm going to get lots of chances, and if I'm just a little bit better this life, and then a little bit better, and a little bit better, I will keep being reincarnated, and maybe I'll get to that place where I need to be. The Bible says, no, we live once, we die once, 
and we stand before God. The Buddhists believe that all the pain in the world is just because they have desires. And if we desire nothing, all that pain will go away. The Bible says the pain is there because of sin, because we don't walk according to God. The New Age movement talks about how we are gods. There's no God out there. There's no one God. We're all gods. And that power to change is only within yourself. And if you would just see how amazing you are, you can change your life by yourself. The Islamic faith does not believe that Jesus died and rose again. I was talking to a Muslim not long ago at the mall. We were reaching out to some Muslims, and I had this conversation, and I said, what about the resurrection? I mean, the disciples saw him and touched him, and he said, I personally believe that that was Judas that was on the cross. And they just looked so much alike that it fooled the people. And I said, that makes no sense. I, I say this respectfully. That doesn't make any sense. How in the world would, the, would Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, flat out lie to the people? And we're going to get into that a little bit later here. So these religions have these stark contrasts that if, even though it sounds good, that aren't we all just trying to worship the same God and we're all going to get there? You know, just do it your own way. It sounds good and it feels right, but it isn't true. Let's jump into our passage here and see, you know, what, what am I talking about? Why is this such a bold statement? And, and we're going to get to read this here about these very strong words that Jesus uses for the Pharisees. Uh, and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the time. And I want to remind you before we jump into this passage again with Jesus being this Jewish person, he's speaking to Jewish leaders He's not even talking to people of another world religion. He's talking to fellow Jews, and he says this to them in verse 1. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Wow. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So what we see here in this, this verse, Jesus uses this word, door, gate, entrance. The same Greek word was translated into some different ways. It just really means the entrance to this pen. There's this gate. There's this, there's this area, this specific area. He gives the illustration of the sheep pen. And he says, there's one way to get into this. If you try to go up another way, he uses this really strong statement. It's not just like they're good people trying to get in. He actually calls them thieves and robbers. I think that it was such a harsh statement to look at these Pharisees face to face, these religious leaders that have given their lives to spiritually lead people, and to look at them and say, you are thieves and robbers because you're leading the people astray with your false teachings and your dark, selfish hearts. 
They were probably like, he's not saying what we think he's saying, is he? Is he talking to us? And it says they didn't understand what he was telling them. And just to kind of give a little bit more context, back to the last week, you know, at the end of John chapter 9, last week I was talking about the blind man that was healed. And at the end of that story in John 9, this is right before he's just speaking to these Pharisees here. So this is, you know, in, the, in that time there's not these chapter breaks. This is a continual conversation that's going on. He's saying to them, you're blind. You're blind spiritually because you don't know where you're going and you don't know where you're leading the people. And the Pharisees are obviously offended by this. And he goes on to say, not only are you blind, you're thieves and robbers because you're trying to take the people that I love and lead them away from me. He goes on into verse 7 and 9 and says, therefore Jesus said again. He's, he's trying to explain it a little bit more so they can really understand. Very truly I tell you, I am the door for the sheep. There's that I am statement. I am the door for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So Jesus tries to make it as clear as he can. And all through the book of John, we know that they started to kind of understand what he was saying because they were so mad. They wanted to kill him. They plotted of how to stop him because of these amazing statements that we were saying. And, and I just want to pause right there and ask this to you. Are these words difficult to hear? Everything that I'm sharing right now, that Jesus calls these people thieves and robbers, that everybody before him that led them to different religions were thieves and robbers, that he's the only way, he's the only door that people might be saved, that when they die and they stand before God, the only solution to their sins is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only entrance. Is that hard for you to hear? I'll be honest with you, when I was first walking with Christ, it was really hard for me to hear. I'm a people pleaser, okay? I'm a diplomatic person. I love including everybody. If I were to, to, to that spectrum I was talking about, like, let's just all love everybody and everybody get along, or over here, like, the dogmatic person that's just, like, the truth speaker, okay? I live over here. This is my tendency. So these are hard words to say, there's a narrow gate that leads to heaven, and there's a broad way that goes to destruction. Yeah, that's really difficult. That's so difficult for me that when I was going through my ordination process to be a pastor, okay, we go through this long process. It's a, it's a pretty hard and strict process. We have a, what we believe is a high bar for our pastors. And when I was in Columbus getting ready to be ordained, the pastors came to me and said, Matt, we'd like to give you more time to work on some things. We'd like to defer you. We don't believe that you're ready to be a pastor yet. And there were several things that they shared with me. But you know what one of them was? They said, you're so easygoing, you're so kind, and you're so loving that we don't know if a wolf came into the church to lead the people astray that you would stand up against them. I was like, wow, that's, thank you, that's hard to hear. 
But deep in my heart, I knew they were right. Yeah, I want to love people. That's my tendency. I want to include everybody. But the men in my life saw a weakness that I might stray from my own core beliefs. I might stray from the solid foundation of God's word just because I'm a people pleaser and I want to get along with everybody. And so I worked on that and I thought about that and I kind of walked out of there thinking, I need to start yelling at some people in this church. Who can I excommunicate? You know, I need to do something to prove to these people that I have a backbone. I didn't really do that, but those were some thoughts that came to my mind. You know, not just last year we had a girl come to our church and they had been coming for a little while and after one of the services she left really upset. She told me she was upset by one of our teachings. And I pursued her, and we had coffee over at Grounds, and she disagreed with some of our beliefs here. And through tears, she said, I'm just really upset that you would even believe these things. And through her tears, she said this statement that really stuck with me. She said, I was coming here because I just thought you guys were so loving. I thought this was a loving church. That was the statement that she said to me. And I was upset, and I was sad that she felt that way. But there was a part of me that was kind of like happy too. I was like, well, we are a loving church. You felt that way because we are. And I said to her, just because we believe firmly in these things that we think God is, is telling us, that doesn't mean that if we disagree with somebody, we don't love them. And I'm sorry that you feel that way. And I'm sorry that you don't feel like you can fellowship here. We want you here. But she chose to go somewhere else. And that decision that she made is, is what mankind has to make the decision. Is this true what Jesus is saying? There's that fork in the road, just like the, the famous poem by Robert Frost, The Road Less Traveled. There are these paths, right? If you've read the poem, you know, one looks a little less traveled and one's going off and you, they kind of bend around in the woods and you can't really exactly see where they're going, but I love the last line. It says, I chose the road less traveled, and that has made all the difference. We have to choose this path. We can't walk down the middle. We can't do all the paths just to be tolerant. And we make those hard decisions because we don't get to manipulate the Bible. The Bible pushes us around, okay? People in the world, they want to push the Bible around and make it say what they want, but we have to come to the Scriptures and let it push us around. And that's why we look at verses like Acts 4.12, where Peter and these disciples that went through these hard times and they saw Jesus rise, uh, rise to life from the death, and they said things like this. There is no salvation. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. As Peter is preaching this to this Jewish audience, they're figuring out who Jesus was. He says, people, there is salvation nowhere else. No other name has been given from God in heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is that only name. Remember the movie The Matrix? Way back when, when we talk about these decisions, the, the blue pill and the red pill, love that movie. That was such a popular movie. It, it, it brought so much intrigue to, the, to everyone that saw it. 
because of the decision. They'd pull Neo out of his fake world where everything, you know, was just kind of like a, a, a mirage. He didn't know it, but he was living in a fairy tale. In the movie, all humans are just batteries, you know, and their minds are, are wired up to just live in this fake world. And, and Morpheus is sitting there with Neo. They, they, they're pulling him out of this fake world. He says, you want to see what the real world is? You take this pill. And we're going to go on an adventure. It's going to be hard. We're going to try to defeat the evil. But if you want to go back to your fake life, your easy life, then take this pill and you'll wake up and you'll be back in your old life like nothing happened. And they're sitting there in this place and he has this decision to make. And he takes, he takes the pill. He, he says, I, I want to I know what's really going on. And they go on this adventure to bring truth and to rescue people. When you think about this hard truth of who Jesus is, it reminds us of C.S. Lewis's example of the Lord, liar, and lunatic. We have to make a decision on who Jesus is. And C.S. Lewis likely probably, even though he made that famous, he probably got it from this guy, John Duncan, back in the 1800s that were doing writings on these things. These three options. John Duncan, Rabbi John Duncan, called it a trilemma. He says, when we look at the scriptures, we look at the witness of the people, he says this, Christ either deceived mankind by a, cautious, a, a conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and deceived, or he was divine. There's no getting out of this trilemma. This is where C.S. Lewis took this and said, he was either de you know, deceiving everybody as a fraud, he was lying to people, intentionally saying, I am God, I'm the only way to heaven, I'm going to die on the cross for your sins, and I'm going to rise again to prove it. He just made it all up. Or he was crazy himself. He was a lunatic. He was self-deceived. He didn't know who he was. And if we come to the agreement that Jesus did not live his life like a liar, and he surely didn't seem crazy, you're only left with one option. He was God. He is Lord. And he is worthy of us giving his, our whole life to him. Back to that summary of John. But these things are written. This whole gospel thing was written to us today that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we will have eternal life. Back to Tim Keller to kind of just summarize this whole teaching. He expands on this probably what I think is, is probably one of the more important idols of our world to reveal, okay? I don't even know if I'd say, you know, uh, the Jewish faith that doesn't think Messiah has come yet or the Islamic faith that, that values Muhammad more than Jesus and that Jesus didn't really die or the New Age movement or Buddhism or Hinduism. I think the religion of our time is just be good and you'll go to heaven, that's really the religion of our time. It's like another idol, that, another heresy that we need to attack. And Tim Keller kind of speaks of that. He says this, The universal religion of humankind is we develop a good record and give it to God, and then he owes us. The gospel, contrary, is this. 
God develops a good record through Jesus and gives it to us, then we owe him. In short, to say a good person, not just Christians, but good people, can find God is to say good works are enough. But this apparently inclusive approach is really quite exclusive. Why does he say that? It says the good people are in and the bad people are out. What does that mean for those of us with moral failures? We are excluded. So both approaches are exclusive, but the gospel is the more inclusive exclusivity. It says joyfully, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've been at the gates of hell. You can be welcomed and embraced fully and instantly through Christ. Isn't that a beautiful quote? Isn't that an amazingly articulate way to put it? If you even say out of your tolerance to try to please the people around us, just everybody be good and we'll all end up in heaven together, what does that mean for someone like me that's given himself to, to drugs at one time? Immorality, drunkenness, selfishness, lying. All these things that I've done wrong that I'm ashamed of in my life, I wouldn't put myself in the good category. If it's just based on being good, I'm excluded. So now we're not getting very far down the road. We're not getting anywhere with this inclusive gospel of being good. Some of us are excluded. And Jesus says this to every one of us. I want you. I want all of you. Regardless of your past, I love you. And I didn't just die on the cross for a few sins of the good people. I died on the cross for the horrible, horrendous things that we've done because I still love you and I want you. And Jesus is giving every one of us that invitation. He's handing it to you right now. He's saying, do you want to come in my door? I want you to come in. I want you to live with me. I want you to come to this gathering in my house, in my kingdom. Would you please come? Here's the door. Those other doors aren't the right doors. Here's the door, and here's your invitation. Would you come and be with me? And that invitation is in our hand. Do we want to take it, and do we want to respond and enter that warm, loving welcome of forgiveness? That's his plan for you. That's his desire for you. That's our prayer for every person, regardless of your experience and regardless of who you are. What an amazing gospel. What a great good news. Let's pray and ask that every one of us would respond to that.